Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie. The greatest rock and roll star in the world. Ever. Ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? I is for is. David Bowie is. Oh, but now this is the opportunity that I was lucky enough to grab with both hands on three occasions, Bob. I will get to your role in this scenario a little bit later on. <laughs> that won't take long. But the uh, no, but the outing, uh, its original outing was, of course, at the V&A Museum, yeah. and um, and I've got the press release here. So I've got the David Bowie's information press pack. Here, yes, okay. Uh, which I uh, picked up on the uh, the original night that I went. More of which later. So news release: David Bowie's in partnership with Gucci, a sound experienced by Sennheiser. 23rd of March, 28th of July, 2013. So this is what he's written here. The V&A has been given unprecedented access to the Davy Bowie archive to curate the first international retrospective of the extraordinary career of Davy Bowie, one of the most pioneering and influential performers of modern times. David Bowie is, opening next spring, will explore the creative processes of Bowie as a musical innovator and cultural icon, tracing his shifting style and sustained reinvention across five decades. Oh, Couldn't have put it better myself, no. really. OK, one of the great things about Bowie is, obviously, that, that people probably had an idea of. He was, uh, I wouldn't say he was a hoarder, but he was his own archivist, wasn't he? He curated his own stuff, so he kept all this wonderful uh, sort of memorabilia from right from the word go, and he'd had it in storage and thought, I want do something with this and of course the market is there for it well do you know if you look at the other ones i didn't go to the prince one and the prince one was great apparently mm. uh, but i did go to the pink floyd one which i really really enjoyed um and there was lots of gear in there which you would imagine there's keyboards in there you know hammonds and yeah. there's, there's mixing desks also from abbey road and mm. there were guitars and basses and stuff and the one thing that really stopped me in my tracks uh, was sid barrett's uh, telecaster with the ah. mirrors on it the round mirrors yeah. and i was like oh man to be in the same room as that and then i'm not being funny or just uh, you know like a disparaging here uh, but it was a it was a copy yeah and they'd remade it you know and i, and I felt really a bit kind of like uh, disappointed really yeah. because i thought it just i could have made that telecaster like that i could have gone to the shop bought a telecaster and made some round mirrors and stuff yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, but it, it's what it looked like and the rest of it was great and there was a really brilliant stuff it, even from albums that i'm not that keen on like lots of the big figures uh, from the wall oh, you know, okay, and all right. that kind of yeah. all the scarf stuff mm. so it was great but it didn't in any way compare to the bowie uh, exhibition. Now, of course, I'm mad on Bowie, and I like Pink Floyd a lot, and I like Prince a lot. Yeah. But as you say, Davy Bowie, he just kept everything. So we'll go through some of the costumes in mm. that now. But if you think about, we've talked a lot about Freddie Beretti. 
you know, and him making these yes, special yeah. costumes for David. And also the fact that it meant so much to David that eventually it became part and parcel of the whole Bowie shtick, didn't it? Mm, it wasn't yeah. just about it wasn't just about the music. No. As we know, it was about the theatre and it was about the costumes and his hair and the way that he reacted with Ronson, particularly on stage. And so it was a pivotal part of what yeah. he did. And 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 he, and he kept it. Yeah. So, you know, the exhibition itself, so you can trace, as you say, you know, it's Bowie's narrative, isn't it? So you've not just about music, but he's got videos in there, loads of costumes, sketches, stage props, handwritten lyrics, the whole thing. And then this is from the personal archive. So you, this, it's a wet dream for a Bowie fan. And, it, you know, I mean, if you look at it, uh, just having been round it three times, that oh, stuff. You, there are, there are, there's like, you know, stuff that he kept from the mid-60s. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's little posters that were that were made for, you know, the Conrads or whatever. I'm just off the top of my head okay. here. You know, but it was stuff that, you know, again, you would think even just with the passage of time, if you think of the fact that David Bowie did lose control of his uh, mind for a while, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was heavily into drugs between, you know, 1975 and 1976. Uh, somewhere, somebody was keeping an eye on all this stuff and yeah. somebody had the foresight to make sure uh, that it was all kept in good condition. And if you look at it, again, and that was the thing about the V&A exhibition, the, some of the costumes look so delicate mm. that you think, right, okay, they're they, they taking these costumes that haven't been worn for, you know, since 1973, a lot of them. Sure, yeah. And you're thinking, they would probably fall apart if you handle them too much. Mm. And I had an email from somebody uh, on the uh, radio programme, on Six Music, whose job it was, I think it might have been in Groningen, perhaps, uh, but to dress the mannequin with Bowie's gear and, and he said I felt privileged but really really nervous because you've got the it's beautifully made and well made yeah, sure. but of course the more that the David Bowie is exhibition travels around the world and so it's been to Tokyo and Barcelona and Groningen um, in Holland as yeah, well yeah the more he gets taken off a mannequin and gets dragged around to another part of the world, the more chance there is of it becoming, you know, a little bit ty- yeah, tired, you know. you'd be so wary, wouldn't you, completely? But, so it's hard to know where to begin with this. I don't. Well, we don't know how long this episode is going to be, and we don't know how, the, how long the section of the uh, David Bowie is, is going to be. Yeah. But uh, just talking through the first night that I went to, it was the night before it opened. Yeah. And and I went with um, I went with Mark Adams, Total Blam Blam from DavidBowie.com, um, and I also there a handful of other people, which did include Hermione and Ken Pitt and Kevin Can from Any Day Now and George Underwood. Yeah, wow. And there was a couple of other people milling about, probably who belonged to the V&A. Mm. And uh, and the first thing that you see when you go through there is the uh, the, the the huge vinyl um, uh, oh. jumpsuit of Bowie's, which which has got the is it called Tokyo Pop? Is it yeah, called? Yeah, it is. Black vinyl bodysuit. Yeah, it's an amazing thing with big flared pants. That's the first thing you see as you oh, go wow, in there. Oh, really? Cool. And you just and immediately you're a bit like, oh, my uh, word. Okay. So is it behind, you know, sort of like a museum, really? Is it behind glass or is it just there, you know, on a mannequin that you can sort of go right up to? You, yeah, it wasn't behind. Some of it was behind glass right. and some of it wasn't. And some of it was set back in such a way that you couldn't touch it. I mean, you wouldn't touch any of it. It no. was all roped off. But, yeah, sure. th- but that, as I remember, wasn't behind glass. Ooh. And then, you know, the, the way that they, they, they situated everything, you're just skirting around corridors really mm. uh, that were just created to, to house the exhibition and uh, and you go past a load of stuff like George Underwood's artwork for the, the David Bowie yeah, album sure. which again we've, uh, we've previously discussed and all these little prototype posters for gigs mm. and uh, just uh, lyrics 
everything that you just like it takes you so long to get on there that was the beauty of being able to go around it with just a handful of people because when I went the other times it was absolutely rammed right. lest we forget such a hugely sure. popular exhibition yeah. and you had to look over people's shoulders to try and see things but that particular occasion we could take all the time in the world oh, okay I just probably a stupid question here but was it kind of chronological in the and obviously you start with the black vinyl bodysuit but I mean it's kind of beyond that were you kind of starting at the 60s and going through or was it just a little bit more random than that it was a bit more random than that, as I remember. Um, yeah, it was it was random. I mean, I do remember that apart from the the, the Tokyo the black uh, vinyl mm. suit that we've just mentioned, uh, the next thing that you did see was uh, the Starman. You know the the, the costume that the he wore, on Starman, yeah. the quilted yeah. one yeah. again, Freddie Beretti. You know, mm. and uh, and that for me was a massive moment. See, we've, you've oh. already passed some of the earlier stuff and little bits and bats and lyrics and posters and all yeah. that, which is great. And then you're faced with this costume, which was I, I saw him wearing on Lift Off with Aisha, and he also wore on top of the pops. And then, of course, uh, I think I've mentioned previously uh, the fact that I look around whilst looking at this amazing costume, and there's a plaque on the wall there, a little uh, blurb uh, from somebody called Mark Riley saying that the Ziggy you know, or the Starman appearance on uh, Top of the Pops particularly for a lot of people uh, just changed so many lives uh, that that floored me. Uh, but to be just looking at that particular costume, I was aghast. And also you yeah. just, it is amazing. I couldn't even get my leg into the waist of it. It, it must have been so, <laughs> so tiny, Bowie. And then you just go through. I mean, we've got we've got the, uh, the book here. We've both yeah, got the, yeah. the, the bookies uh, that, which came out at the time. And it, and it is brilliant because it shows you a lot of the items that were actually mm. being shown there. So you've got the picture of the, the, the topless model with the Bowie cut, yeah. which was from Vogue, that's which right. I believe Angie spotted and mm. said to David, well, that's a great cut. Yeah. Why don't you go for that? It's also got a model sporting what was a prototype for the previously mentioned vinyl um, suit that oh, Bowie okay. ended up wearing. Right. Uh, you've got look, what looks like Mary Helvin in there in uh, another uh, Japanese print jumpsuit, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, it, it's oh. just, there's too I mean, much, there's too much. Everybody should have this book. Yeah, to the point where you've even got like stuff like colour separations of the Ziggy cover, you know, like you want to see how it was constructed from yeah. an art artwork point of view. We've talked about the tinting work on it, yeah, haven't we? Yeah, that's uh, right. You can see that, but it's also like... Uh, I'm going through the book here, shamelessly, but you've got the contact print there uh, for uh, Terry O'Neill with Diamond Dogs. So yeah. you've got Bowie lying topless on the floor, mm. and then you've got the Greyhound below it, mm. which uh, both the component parts of which were put together yeah. for Guy Pilar yeah. uh, to do it. You've also got the uh, the contact sheet for the great shot of Bowie, again, Terry O'Neill with the uh, with the Greyhound. Yeah. So Bowie sat there with his hat on and uh, reclining in a chair, and the dog jumping up, which was after a sandwich, wasn't it? Yeah, I know we'd put some food up there as bait. Yeah, that I believe makes it sense. was a sandwich. Okay. Also uh, in the exhibition was the the uh, the model which was for Hunger City for the tour. Ah, okay, yeah. Which was just an amazing oh. thing to see. Uh, you've also got drawings that Bowie did for the what was in his mind, Hunger City. Yeah. You've also got a sketch for Hunger City for a proposed film. That never got no, made. Yeah. I am just skirting through here. Well, you know, also, I mean, the costume way, you've got this sort of white silk suit Kanzai Yamamoto did, which is all this really ornate embroidery all over it, which is remarkable. The the suits, the suits, they're, they're all there that you want to see yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like the ice blue suit that Freddie Beretti did for Life on Mars video and stuff. And that great, the sort of like turquoise boots, weren't they, in there that he wore with the brown suit? Well, the pin-up suit, that's great. And what I love about it is, yeah, you can see here the boot. I've got it in front of me. And you've got, yeah, you've got the brown suit. Now, I think that, you know, 
know, metallic blue and brown. It's, I think it's a clash. But <laughs> but he's got a, he's got a matching colour tie as well, yes. which which is absolutely just yeah. so great. And again, that was just a moment where you think, oh, what am I looking at here? Uh, you've also got the uh, the synthesizer mm. um, that Iggy gave to him, right? Okay, and used for the recording of Heroes, yeah. uh, which was just incredible. I love this here. So um, in the book again, you've got the, an original set, 1975 set of the Oblique Strategies cards. Ah, and it's held together with uh, with masking tape, so it's well used. Yeah. We know it's well used. But then uh, on the opposite page, it's got a great little uh, exchange between Bowie and Eno, which they wrote between them when they went to pick up an award for Q magazine ah. and Bowie writes down <laughs> to Eno are you planning on saying out OWT <laughs> and then Eno replies I was going to say that we were expecting best new act <laughs> so <laughs> yeah and uh, for anybody who hasn't been able to make the exhibition I mean you know it depends when you're listening to this but the, the exhibition it's, go, it's in New York in Brooklyn yeah, yeah. and whether that is going to be the last place it will ever be mm. who can say it looks possible I mean the uh, the Brooklyn exhibition does promise well it has 100 or so new objects which is intriguing isn't it some of which never been publicly seen before for example there's a turquoise jumpsuit that Bowie wore with a big sort of lightning bolt flash on the, on the back which I think he only ever wore once in 73 Right, and there's also um, uh, there is also a white suit of Freddie Baretti, which wasn't oh. at the V&A as I remember. Okay. But there's other stuff like there's a little cocaine spoon. There is also really? yeah, there's also the key to the house that they had, uh, the flat that they had in Berlin. Right, okay. There's also the really great Saturday Night Live, yeah. uh, when he, which he did with Klaus Nomi. Mm. Uh, it's got the suit there, with, which again is vinyl and just looks completely bonkers. Yeah, just all angular, isn't it? Amazing. There's also uh, the uh, poodle and a little puppet which. Which appeared uh, on Saturday Night Live yeah. as well, which is absolutely brilliant. And I it's, think the frock coat's in there from Earthling as well, isn't it? There's a distressed one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's all in there. It's just yeah. lyrics to Rebel Rebel and, and, and so many things. I mean, you know, if well, you didn't make it, I really would recommend getting the book because you can just read it and weep. Yeah, well, I didn't make it. No, you, you know. didn't, did but you? But I went down, I was in London one day while it was on at the VA and thought, this is my chance. And uh, tickets had long gone. I've been so slow on the uptake. So tickets had long gone. I thought, I'll just call in, off the an- off chance, because I'd heard that you could go in there and maybe they might be have, have some returns in the afternoon or whatever. Right. So I was down there, I went in, and lo and behold, yes, you know, they, they had a time slot for me. I thought, this is great. The only problem was, and of course it's not a problem, in that I was meeting uh, Roy Harper to do an interview for, uh, for one of the broadsheets. Right. Roy's a fantastic interviewee. And... Um, and it went. It sort of clashed with my allotted time, and I couldn't say to Roy, "Look, I've got to go now." Halfway through, and and, and I missed it. Right. So it was just a case of two things clashing. I never saw it, so I've had to make do with the book. And as you say, second best thing. Yeah. So I mean, so I went to the original night, the the preview night, and then I went twice uh, on yeah on, on two other occasions. I managed to get there, but I was going to go being greedy in Barcelona as well, and right. I was really so looking forward to it, like a much needed holiday because obviously I work very hard, a full eight hours a week. <coughs> um, but um, yeah, it was it was on the night before we were going to go to Barcelona, Trace yeah. and I, my missus, and uh, I got a phone call off Trace saying that Kate, our eldest, had been mm. taken into hospital with their supposed kidney stones right. turned out to be the case and she was having a scan the next morning and so we didn't go right. and uh, and whether I'm going to get to Brooklyn to see it or not I might be hatching a plan at the moment actually but um, yeah I hope so because okay. it's, it's just a, a mind-blowing thing yeah so I'm just intrigued here so obviously you probably had an idea of what it was going to like before you went in Okay, and yeah, being there the night before you got a good look at everything so what was kind of the most sort of revealing or surprising thing for you? 
what really surprised me was how um, I felt when I saw the costumes because I just thought I was excited. Mm. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And I never got to see Ziggy or Aladdin Saint or... And so I thought, yeah, to get to see these things would just be really, really thrilling. But... On several occasions, I was just really taken aback. Really? Right. Yeah, I mean, that the, the, the Starman costume got me. Yeah, sure. Uh, as did the Life on Mars costume, that got me. And they're showing you the video, the Mick Rock video behind it. Right. Um, those things particularly really got me. But there's also great stuff like, you know, from the 1980 floor show that he wore only once. Oh, yeah, the cobwebby suit <laughs> they've got, with the hands. They've got the, the web suit with the hands on, which we might have mentioned before. Right. It's got a hand over each breast, but mm. also had a hand over the crotch. That's but right. The NBC for uh, the documentary 1984 show, they made them take the hand off because it looked like he was cupping his uh, genitalia. Right. Um, but the the red hot pants and uh, and ah. top with the feather boa, which mm. he wore whilst he was doing the duet with uh, Marianne Faithful, yeah. that was in there as oh, well. Wow, okay. So there was just uh, these things that... I wasn't prepared because these are things that I've been looking at off and on, not on a daily basis, you know, yeah, sure. but off and on for uh, most of my life. Yeah. And then to be in the room with them uh, is just yeah, absolutely um, jaw-dropping. And the, and the Ziggy suit as well was in there oh, in, in cool. a kind of glass coffin uh, with the boots. And I think it, I think actually, you know, that might have been a replica. Oh, okay. I think, right, uh, okay. as memory serves. But, um, yeah, and all the quirky little things that were in there, yeah. like the cocaine spoon. Sure, and that. You, yeah. don't, you don't expect to see those things. But, uh, yeah, it really got to me on a couple of occasions. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, when you think about it, you've grown up with that stuff so long as part of your DNA, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's going to hit you on an emotional level and probably when you least, least expect it. Yeah, it really did. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. I is for I'm waiting for the man. It most certainly is. A very, very famous pop tune, Bob. So, originally by The Velvet Underground, written by Lou Reed, and it was first on their debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, released in 1967. The subject matter, waiting on a street corner to buy some drugs in Harlem, New York. $26 worth of heroin, to be precise, which I am told is $195 in real money today. I did my research there, Mark, yeah. Oh, good yeah. work, fellow. That was you, was it? It right. was, Okay. Yeah. And it was sung from the point of view of the buyer. The man, of course, is a drug dealer, just one of several 
VU tunes sort of centred around the subject of drugs. And when he left the band in 1970, Lou Reed continued to play at his solo shows. Released as a single on MGM in October 71 with There She Goes Again on the B-side, credited to Andy Warhol's Velvet Underground. Mm. Uh, so the song was a number of early songs recorded by Lou Reed, John Cale and Sterling Morrison in the band's Ludlow Street Loft in Manhattan in the summer of 1965. And the original version without percussion, it was more of a folky, bluesy yeah. kind of thing, wasn't it? Which you've got on the Peel Slowly and See box set. Yeah, you can listen to it there. So before the album version was recorded in May 66 in Hollywood, a different take was done at uh, Skepta Studios. Skepta? Skepta? At Manhattan in April. The original Manhattan take is slightly shorter. Piano is a bit less obvious and there's tambourine instead of drums. It's also different because Reed sings I'm Waiting for The Man at the beginning rather than uh, I'm Waiting for My Man on the album. Yeah. And then the uh, lineup that we mentioned before was just joined by Maureen Tucker, Mo Tucker on drums. And yeah. there's been yeah, quite a few cover versions, haven't there? Yeah, loads. The Yardbirds did it with Jimmy Page in 68. Yeah, Iggy and the Stooges. Uh, Beck. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Sheep on Drugs did it. Slaughter and the Dogs. Bauhaus did it live with Nico. Yeah, Bell and Sebastian. Cheap Trick. Pearl Jam. The Pink Fairies. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Plant and Page. Tom Robinson. And Richard Hawley. And, of course, David Bowie. Yeah, here's okay. where we get to Bowie. So this is uh, this is interesting. So he, uh, Ken Pitt brings back the acetate of the Velvet Underground and Nico from yeah. New York in December 1966. Now, he'd gone over in the first place because, a fair play to him, he was interested in looking after Andy Warhol's house group, yeah. as they were known, the Velvet Underground, and he wanted to be their UK promoter. So I don't think Bowie had pushed him at this point, had he? No, not at all. It doesn't seem that no, way, no. anyway. But anyway, he this is great. He took Warhol out to lunch did Ken Pitt. Warhol didn't say much, give over. Allowed Pitt to pick up the bill, give over. And finally agreed to let him promote the VU <laughs> at his own expense, give over. Mm. So nothing ever came of it, give over. Apart from something which was monumental and monolithic, which was the acetate that Andy Warhol gave to Ken Pitt. Of course, so of course he passes that on to Bowie. Bowie loves it, particularly I'm waiting for the man. So this is Bowie talking in 2002. He said the first track glided by uh, innocuously enough and didn't register. However, from that point on, with the opening, throbbing, sarcastic bassing guitar of I'm Waiting for the Man, the linchpin, the keystone of my ambition, was driven home. This music was so savagely indifferent to my feelings, it didn't care if I liked it or not. It was completely preoccupied with a world unseen by my suburban eyes. I was hearing a degree of cool I had no idea was humanly sustainable. Amazing. So, yeah, his first attempt at recording it was during the sessions for his first album. Yeah, I know. Wow. Uh, in early 1967, including saxophone played by Bob Evans and harmonica solos, and Gus Dudgeon added laughter and vocal sound effects. <laughs> laughter? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a hilarious subject, obviously. Well, uh, But Bowie did say later that the basic rhythm of the laughing gnome came from I'm Waiting for the Man. Well, I didn't know this until we started researching this. That just sounds the remarkable. Most, the most unlikely pairing <laughs> ever. Absolutely. So in March that year, 67, uh, Bowie included the song in the Riot Squad set list when they were playing uh, Kodak Social Club in Harrow. So alongside stuff like Little Toy Soldier and Silly Boy Blue, so, yeah. so incongruous this. He was the first person to perform I'm Waiting for the Man uh, live in the UK months before the VU record even came out in the States. Bowie said later, now that's the essence of mod. Yeah, and uh, we do need to mention at this point in time as well that we are still in, te- in a tent in the Arctic and yeah. that is the Arctic wind oh. that you can hear blowing around Listen us. To that. Okay, so uh, Bowie never cut an official studio version of it, but he recorded it again during sessions for the BBC which we know in February and March in 1970 uh, one of which did end up on the BBC sessions and the sampler and all mm, that that's right stuff, yeah. uh, and he cut the song again a couple of times at the BBC in January 
1972, the last of which ended up at Bowie at the Beeb. And uh, yeah, he just kept going back to it, didn't he? He, yeah. he wouldn't let it. He wouldn't let it lie. He wouldn't. And then oh, he makes you think. Didn't he? You know, trying different variations on it. Was he just struggling to nail it? He probably think. I oh, wish he'd written it himself. Yeah. Bottom line, he was know? a big influence on yeah. on, on the modern. Absolutely. Yeah. So Height played it during one of the two famous Roundhouse gigs on the same bill as Genesis, which we've been through before in March 1970. And I'm waiting for the man, a regular part of Bowie's live shows on the Ziggy tour of '72, including the time at the Royal Festival Hall, which was the Friends of the Earth kind of Save the Whales show, wasn't it? Yeah. Where he did a duet with, uh, well, an inebriated Lou Reed uh, in July. Right, OK. And a month earlier, during the Spiders from Mars' first official billing as Bowie's backing band at Friars Aylesbury, uh, Bowie had chosen to close the set with I'm Waiting for the Man, at which point Bowie, naked from the waist up, started chasing Mick Ronson around the stage, trying to press his body against him. <laughs> it sounds like something from a 1970s sitcom, doesn't yeah, it? Really? Yeah, it'll carry on, maybe. It also ended up as B-side in 94, taken from live Santa Monica 72, and that version ended up on the soundtrack of Almost Famous a few years later. Right. Uh, Bowie was still at it in the set list during the Station to Station tour. You can hear it live on live uh, Nassau Coliseum bootleg. Uh, and Tim Machine played it live too. So Bowie and Lou Reed sang it together again at Bowie's 50th birthday bash at Madison Square Garden in 97. Which I was invited to, but didn't go. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. I is for Iman. Iman, Zara Mohammed. Abdul Majid, mononymously known as Iman, or Faith in Arabic. Easy uh, for you to say, Well, I'm not going to try that twice. <laughs> <laughs> I've been practising that one. Uh, she is a Somali-American fashion model, actress and entrepreneur, pioneer in the field of ethnic cosmetics. Yeah, she's also noted for her philanthropic work. She's a widow of David Bowie, we know that. She mm. married him in 1992. Right, so going right back, born in Mogadishu, the capital of the Trust Territory of Somaliland. She was later renamed Iman, a grandfather's urging, apparently, a dad was a diplomat and a former Somali ambassador to Saudi Arabia. A late mother was a gynaecologist. Yeah, so she has four siblings, two brothers, Elias and Faisal, and two younger sisters, Idil and Nadia. And uh, Iman lived with her grandparents during her formative years, and at the age of four she was sent to boarding school in Egypt mm. where she spent most of her childhood and adolescence. Okay, so after all the political unrest in Somalia, Iman's father moved the family back to the country. At his behest, she, her mother and siblings subsequently travelled to Kenya were later joined by her father and younger sister. Yeah, and there she studied political science at the University of Nairobi, just for a brief period. Uh, she's Muslim. She's fluent in five languages, mm. Somali, Arabic, Italian, French and English, a bit like myself. Yeah, that is impressive. So let's get on to the career, shall we? So while she was still at university, Iman was discovered by the American photographer Peter Beard. Not to be confused with the ex-footballer Peter Beardsley, but <laughs> I thought you might say that. <laughs> subsequently moved to the States to begin her modelling career. Yeah, so her first modelling assignment was for Vogue a year later in 1976. After that she soon landed some of the most prestigious magazine covers establishing herself as a supermodel yeah during her 14 years as a high fashion model she also worked with notable photographers such as helmut newton richard avedon Irving Penn and Annie Leibowitz. Yeah, okay. So Iman credits the nurturing she received from various designers with having given her the confidence to succeed in a, an area where individuality was valued and sort of model muses were often an integral part of the whole process. Uh, so on to business. She started her own cosmetics firm in 1994. Been on TV as an actress, twice appearing in Miami Vice. She also had a guest role as Mrs Montgomery on The Cosby Show in the mid-80s. Yeah, film career, an occasional actress. She first appeared in the 19. 
1979 British film The Human Factor. She had a bit part in the 1985 film Out of Africa, starring Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. She was in the thriller No Way Out with Kevin Costner yeah. and several other movies. Uh, also dabbled in a bit of, uh, well, comedic roles, appearing in The Linguini Incident the same year, opposite her then-fiancé, David Bowie. Talking of whom, OK, so she first married, aged 18, to a Somali entrepreneur, a Hilton executive. Yeah, the marriage ended a few years later when she moved to the States to uh, pursue her modelling career. Yeah, in 1977, she dated the American actor Warren Beatty, which Who hasn't? most people did yeah. in America at that point in time. I think later that year, she got engaged to, uh, to the American basketball player Spencer Haywood. Uh, their daughter was born in 1978. The two divorced in February 87. Yeah, so uh, 24th of April 1992, Imam married English rock musician David Bowie in a private ceremony in Lausanne, Switzerland. And then the wedding was later solemnised on the 6th of June in Florence, who drove past the place, actually, when Trace and I went to Florence. Did you? Yeah, somebody went, and up there, that's where David Bowie got married to Iman. And they have one daughter, uh, which is uh, Alexandria Zara Jones, born on the 15th of August 2000. Yeah, Iman and her family resided primarily in Manhattan and London. Yeah, so how they met, I like this story. Mm. The, the man who introduced David Bowie to his future wife was his close friend and personal hairdresser, Teddy Antolin, but he was crucially also the same to Iman. Yeah, OK, so he'd uh, met Iman at another showbiz party in L.A. some years earlier, so Teddy arranged for Bowie to uh, meet her at his birthday party in L.A. in 1990. On meeting Iman, Teddy said, I didn't want to speak to her at first. I thought it'd be so cliche if I said how beautiful you are and all that stuff, but you end up doing that and we started talking and a light bulb went on. Uh, he begged uh, Bowie, who was then based in New York, of course, to fly to L.A., especially for his birthday dinner party at a restaurant where the unsuspecting Iman would be a guest. So there he is, you know, he's got his, he's his matchmaker. He's like Silla Black, yep. in some ways. Uh, so, <laughs> David, you know, anybody listening all around the world, Silla Black had a programme <laughs> called Blind Date. Google it. Yeah. Anyway, David arrived in a white Mustang sports car wearing white jeans and a white jacket. Iman showed up in a black Mercedes wearing all black leather. And I thought, aye, aye, what could be more perfect? The minute she walked in, all the attention went to her. She just claimed the room. She had a big smile and her and David looked at each other. And it was love at first sight. You could feel the electricity. Something went off. Oh, OK. Uh, they spent the night talking to each other like they'd known each other forever. They were looking at each other like... Now what, should we skip dessert and go home? Uh, the couple were engaged in months, but although the first meeting was straightforward, the engagement wasn't. According to Teddy, Iman turned Bowie down at his first proposal. Uh, David took up the Bosphorus straight on his yacht and proposed. Uh, apparently his mum, Peggy, went to the wedding. I didn't go, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. And apparently she didn't, she didn't, she, he asked her to marry him, but she wouldn't do it because they'd not met each other's parents. Oh, is that why? Yeah, she was just very traditional wow, about it. Okay. So she loved him, but she, she was like, yeah, I've got to, I've not met your mum yet. Fair I, enough. We, we can't do this. So very traditional, just for such untraditional, like, bohemian people. Yeah. What, what a great attitude. Uh, so they had the formal marriage at Lausanne uh, City Hall in Switzerland on the 24th of April, and it was followed up with an extravagant wedding in a villa in Tuscany on the 6th of June, invited were Yoko Ono and Brian Eno and uh, fashion kingpin Valentino. Yeah, so when Bowie died on 10th of January 2016, making her a widow, of course, she wrote in tribute to him that the struggle is real, but so is God. And then there are books, well, there's a book called I Am Iman, which came out in 2001. Now there's a CD that came with that, is there? Yeah, there is a Bowie compiled CD and uh, yeah, and I've got it. Oh, look at you. Mm. She also did one called The Beauty of Colour in 2005. Right, okay. 
is for Ian Hunter. Ian Hunter Patterson, to be correct, born 3rd of June 1939, British singer-songwriter, best known, of course, lead singer of Mott the Hoople, from when they started in 69 to uh, being uh, dissolved in 74. And of course, he was there when they reunited in 2009 and 2013. Yeah, okay, so Hunter was a musician and songwriter before joining Mark the Hoople and continued in this vein after he left the band. Born in Shropshire, and due to the onset of war, Hunter's mother and siblings moved to live with the family of his Scottish father in Hamilton, South Lanarkshire. Yeah, okay, and so he uh, was brought up there until the age of six, and he stated that he considers himself a Scot, right. also additionally identifying himself as English and British. Okay, it's so... Called hedging your bets. Absolutely, you know, uh, his entry into the music business itself came after a chance encounter with Colin York and Colin Broom at Butlin's Holiday Camp where the trio won a talent competition performing Blue Moon all playing acoustic guitars. Yeah, I mean, apparently Colin Broom cleaned up at that one. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> comedy podcast next, mate. Oh. So he joined a band called the Apex Group but left them in 1958 but then joined them again. That's often the case with these mm. bands, isn't it? They yeah. just a revolving door policy. Okay, so in 1963, he's still a group member. Hunter forms a band in direct competition to the Apex Group. Get this, Hurricane Henry and the Shriekers. Great name. They were never going to last, let's face it. But when uh, the pianist, Freddie Fingers Lee, took over as frontman in March 64, Hunter moved on to play bass. Yeah, but the Apex group then found out that Hunter was in another band, so he was kicked out. Well, you would do. I'd do that. Yeah. yeah. I told you he was edging his best. Yeah. So at Freddie Lee's suggestion, the Shriekers began taking jobs in the same German clubs where the Beatles had cut their teeth a few years earlier. So in an interview in 2004, uh, Hunter volunteered that Lee and their gigs in Hamburg were amazing a turning point for him. The moment where he really first started thinking, maybe I could do this instead of just working in factories all my life. Because he was a jobbing musician for the most of the 60s, wasn't he? Yeah. And he was experienced, was he? Which made him perfect for Guy Stevens. So mm. he put the band together, uh, Mott the Hoople, originally called Silence, and they were named after the Willard Manus 1966 novel, Mott the Hoople. Uh, but they didn't have a singer. Well, they did have a singer, but it was Stan Tippin, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Who they actually ousted and and brought in Ian Hunter, and yeah. Stan just nobly went over to being the tour manager. Yeah, I don't think he ever really wanted to be the singer, did he? So Mott the Hoople were a critical success in the UK. Some of the most dedicated early fans included members of The Clash, or future members, Mick Jones specifically. Yeah. They couldn't sustain their commercial appeal. Their American tours were slow in building a following, which you probably would expect. Yeah, so they'd released several LPs and attracted enthusiastic live audiences. That's one word for it. I mean, mm. they were nutters. They, were, they got banned from the Royal Albert Hall for ripping up and stuff, yeah, didn't yeah. A pretty larry band, actually, but mm. the record sales weren't great. I think they were more of a live band, really. Definitely. And so, uh, yeah, you know, 1972, a concert in a gas cylinder in Switzerland, the band had just had enough. Yeah. They thought, right, okay, let's let's call it quits. Yeah, we've given it a go, nobody's buying the records, etc. So this is the point where Bowie comes in. So Bowie's a fan of the band at this point, and he offers them a song he'd just written. Yeah, so Hunter recalls this. He offered us Suffragette City, which I didn't think was good enough. Now, this is what we mentioned before about Bowie, apparently, in a fit of peak he shaved his eyebrows off at this point. That's that's the story. Uh, so and he then sat down on the floor in Regent Street in his publisher's office and plays all the young dudes on acoustic guitar. Of course, Mott did it. Got to number three in the UK singles chart and it sort of revived their fortunes, didn't it? And they were well, obviously they were appreciative of what Bowie had done for them. Yeah. Uh, guitarist Mick Ralph said later that uh, Bowie taught Mott studio tricks, but one of the most best-known sounds during the period was a hand clap in the toilet routine that relied more on Hunter's vision than it did on Bowie's. 
sort of more experienced studio trickery. Mick Ronson played a big part also in mm. the, the whole sound of Mott the Hoople and their uh, arrangements and all that kind of stuff. And it didn't go unnoticed by Ian Hunter because they ended up working together a lot, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they did. So, Firm you know, friends. Yeah. So the Mott albums, of course, that were hits, All the Young Dudes produced by Bowie in 72, and then Mott, and then The Hoople, of course, 74. Yes. The Hoople featuring Luther Grosner, also known as Ariel Bender. Yeah. And, he, and he came in for a while in a, a great period for the band, the glam period of yeah. the band for The Hoople. And he was a guy that you would see, generally speaking, on top of the pops. And uh, yeah, and then he left or was ousted. Yes. We'll find out. And Rono came in, Mick Ronson came in. Uh, that didn't last long either. As he later did with Iggy and Lou Reed, of course, he saved Mott the Hoople's bacon for a while at least. This is um, Bowie, of course. Yeah, and uh, they were actually also part of the main man roster with Tony yeah. DeFries, and that was a bit of a gnarly relationship. And uh, yeah, Mott the Hoople did leave. When they left, I think that Ian Hunter said something like, well, you know, we appreciate what you did for us, David, but I think we did quite a lot for you as well. So right, I don't okay. know what he was alluding to there. Mm. He was being a bit kind of like um, clandestine about right, it. Okay, mirrors, right, but yeah. Okay, so we get to the sort of important chronology, I suppose, of Bowie-related events and Ian Hunter. So 26th of March in 72, this is when Bowie hears that Mott the Hoople are splitting up. Yeah, the 9th of April, Bowie and DeFees go to watch Mott the Hoople live at Guildford Civic Centre and Bowie gets up to perform with them at the Encore. Wow, okay. 14th of May, 72, they start recording All the Young Dudes. Yeah, and the rest is history and it yeah. made the Mott LP was followed by the Hoople and a load of hits. I mean, Ian Hunter talking about his relationship with Bowie, he said Bowie offered us uh, Suffragette City first, which I liked, but I knew it wouldn't get on radio. Uh, radio was closed to us, so I knew we needed something special. I thought it'd be something like You Really Got Me, that was more how we were. Uh, with Suffragette rejected, Bowie offered them another one, of course, with his dudes. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Interviews. Images. Eric Idle. The Image. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.